Hi, everyone. This is Rohan Sadanti, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider, digital health, and investing spaces. Today, I'm joined by a co-host and one of the students taking over the podcast next year. I'm so excited. His name is Dr. Arpan Parikh. Arpan, thanks for coming on board. Would you like to tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Rohan. Hi, everyone. It's so great to meet the community. I'm a first-year MBA student at Wharton and also a currently practicing physician specializing in psychiatry and addiction medicine. Before coming to Wharton, I ran one of Mount Sinai Hospital's outpatient addiction psychiatry clinics in New York City. Wow. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on board. Absolutely. So let's jump right into today's podcast. I'm happy to say that we finally are bringing you all a guest from the world of behavioral health. Today, we're lucky to have Maria Mullick, a 2016 Wharton MBA grad who now leads physician partnerships for Genoa Healthcare, which was acquired by Optum in the fourth quarter of 2018. Genoa is one of the nation's largest operators of on-site specialty pharmacy centers, telepsychiatry, and medication management intended to assist behavioral health and addiction treatment communities and centers. Hello, Miriam. How are you doing? Hi, Rohan. Hi, Arpan. Nice to meet you both again on the podcast. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for coming on board. Um, so Arpan, Miriam, and I connected at the Wharton Healthcare Conference. It takes place in February each year. Uh, we met, and after five minutes, uh, Arpan and I looked at each other, and we said we got to get her on the podcast. Um, so we're lucky to have her. Thanks so much. Uh, we like to jump right into things and get our listeners going. Um, so, Miriam, can you give us a brief summary of your career path, kind of before and after Wharton, and then how you got to Genoa? Yeah, sure. So, I feel like my journey didn't start off too uniquely from a lot of people who end up in healthcare. Um, I have a physician parents and thought that I wanted to be a doctor loved life sciences and learning about healthcare from the medical standpoint early on, but quickly realized in undergrad at Berkeley that there's more out there. If you want to work in healthcare, there's other ways to do it. Um, I started exploring what I'm passionate about and problem solving and working on more structural problems uh, was something I gravitated towards. So I was juggling pre-med and pre-business at Berkeley and eventually decided to just go in all in for business and um, came out on the other side with a job at LEK Consulting. So British firm, but located in San Francisco. Uh, I joined at a pretty opportune time. So 2010, Affordable Care Act was becoming extremely uh, well understood and the implications were being studied. Clients were coming to LEK for all kinds of strategy work. So spent four years there working in healthcare services and dedicating my time to mostly payers, providers, um, some health tech companies as well. Um, did six months in London to test if healthcare was really where I wanted to go. I used that six months as a time to not do healthcare and did other cases, but that helped me realize that I'm just happiest solving healthcare challenges. So quickly decided to go to business school. Um, was sort of a natural decision since Wharton has a great healthcare management program and use that time to crystallize uh, my interests and goals. And that's where I met Samer Malik, actually no relation, even though we have the same last name on a panel during preterm. So from there, it kind of flowed, flowed, uh, flowed pretty naturally. Interned at One Doc Way as a product manager and enjoyed seeing what the company was like uh, at that stage in 2015. 
And then when I graduated from Wharton, I joined full-time at Genoa Healthcare. At this point, it had been acquired um, by Genoa and stepped in to build the physician partnerships team. So I feel pretty lucky that the story has flowed pretty well and has always led me in a way that has kept my career pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. We're always wondering how rock stars like yourself get to those positions. Uh, and so you're, you're kind of painting that path for us. So I really appreciate it. Any student who's at Wharton um, knows the name Samer Mollick for the story, reasons you just mentioned. Um, and now they're going to know the name Miriam Mollick as well. <laughs> no relation, but they should know that they should know your story. So again, thanks for coming on board. So let's um, now that we get your story, let's start to get into behavioral health. Um, before we go straight to Genoa, we like to zoom out and talk about the industry, kind of what the issues are, megatrends. So let's set the stage for why a company like Genoa needs to needs to exist. And if you could paint that picture for us, what are some of the megatrends or issues that a company like Genoa uh, was trying to address? Sure. Yeah, I guess I should start by defining a little bit more on what Genoa does. So Genoa Healthcare oh. has grown to become the largest uh, pharmacy provider for community mental health centers. So they're focused on building on-site pharmacies at clinics, and they're in hundreds of clinics across the U.S. So we've also added the capability of doing medication management services and with the one doc way acquisition, doing telepsychiatry as well. So the focus is the underserved Medicaid population. Um, we do branch out to Medicare and some commercial and uninsured as well, but really the running theme is the underserved population. And when you're thinking about behavioral health and mental health, and when you're thinking about that specifically with that population, there's so much need for companies like Genoa and for all the services that Genoa offers. So for example, if we're focusing on telepsych specifically, there's a need to come in and define what telemedicine even looks like in psychiatry and in behavioral health, right? So you're seeing companies pop up that are tackling it in other specialties, but for psychiatry and mental health, you have to start to build the infrastructure of everything that's needed um, outside of the appointment as well. Behavioral health and mental health are so complex especially when you're talking about Medicaid patients with co-occurring diagnoses. Uh, so the team approach is one that needs to be crystallized and really defined. I don't think that communicating over video is necessarily a novel idea, right? We hop on FaceTime and Skype and video calls. So that's not exactly where the pressing need is. It's just, it's almost ironic that telemedicine companies have to prove that the care coordination and the workflows work for telemedicine because they actually don't always work in person either. So, so really, we're starting to address the, the need of figuring out how to deliver care properly, whether it's in person or over video. Um, I'd say the other area that we're tackling is marketing to people who are still skeptical about telemedicine and about telepsychiatry. There's yeah. a growing need and recognition for it, but there's still obviously some resistance because it's people's care and it's hard to shift their mindset to thinking about doing something virtually when they're so used to the idea of in-person. And that's something we're looking to overcome. Absolutely. So Miriam, I'm wondering if you can tell us more of maybe about two or three either regulatory tailwinds or maybe the removal of some headwinds that you see as important to you know, using telemedicine as a delivery mechanism for behavioral health care in this country? Yeah, definitely. So one of the major changes that we've seen in the last 
few years is on the reimbursement side. Medicaid actually has been leading the charge on reimbursing for telemedicine visits. In almost all states, Medicaid will will cover the cost and sometimes even provide a bonus to clinics and facilities for using telemedicine. And that bonus is to incentivize them to adopt it and address access issues. Um, not all states were on board with prescribing electronically, right? So that's something that has had to evolve on a state-by-state basis. And we actually played a role in shaping the Indiana regulations around uh, e-prescribing so that controlled substances can be prescribed without having to see a patient in person, for example. So that's the removal of a headwind that was really helpful for us. So we started building Indiana telepsych programs. Um, now we're seeing more uh, push for people recognizing that this is a viable form of care delivery. There's outcome studies coming out, and that's going to the payer world to sort of push for reimbursement. And, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of a lot of uh, tailwinds on 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 that front as well. Thanks for telling us a bit more about that. I think additionally, uh, the removal or reduction of stigma when it comes to behavioral health has probably driven a lot of the developments in this area. I think another part of that is actually thinking about how we define behavioral health. Can you tell us a bit about how you think about terms like behavioral health or mental health or psychiatry? Are these all discrete entities? Are they all part of the same umbrella of treatments? How do you think about those? It's a good question. And it's something that was more unclear to me before I started working in this space. Uh, My approach and my understanding of it is really just one person and other people may have different ways of defining how behavioral health versus medical, um, the medical world. So the way I think about it is medical care, that's something that covers really all specialties outside of psychiatry. You'll think of your primary care, your internal medicine, cardio, et cetera. And then behavioral health is the umbrella term that covers mental health and substance use disorders. So mental health, of course, people can range in acuity from lower to higher and have different types of needs and diagnoses like anxiety and depression, mood disorders, um, and then substance use ends up being more around addiction, um, and that's where you'll receive treatment like Suboxone. Those two are subsets of behavioral health, but psychiatry and therapy are very they're not categories within within this world. To me, they're, they're tools that are used to help improve people's lives. So a psychiatrist, for example, may, may offer psychotherapy and medication, or someone may just be in therapy. So those are two different types of tools that someone uses rather than categorization. Um, to address your point about the stigma, I think that sometimes there's there's a push to think of it as one world, medical and behavioral together. But to me, keeping them separate isn't really the source of the stigma. Um, I think stigma is really driven by a lack of understanding of where to start when addressing behavioral health needs, either for an individual or society, or a lack of uh, willingness to do so. And if we can start to unpack that and address those deeper level structural issues, then that's where we'll start to see stigma reduction. It doesn't necessarily come by just defining things differently. Absolutely. So I think the question about stigma and thinking about 
where consumers even start to access behavioral health is actually really interesting. And we're seeing this real trend in medicine of direct-to-consumer healthcare, both in diagnostics and therapeutics, really lowering that bar and making it easier for the population to access services. I wonder how you see this direct-to-consumer trend playing out in the behavioral health space, if at all. Yeah, it's a very interesting trend. I I really appreciate that it's a growing trend because that's reflective of a desire from people to want to take a larger role in their own behavioral health needs or the behavioral health needs of their loved ones. Um, The fact that there are companies creating services and products to put the tools in people's hands to start to manage that, that's, I mean, to the earlier point, that's really how you start to address stigma. You make it okay and you give people a path forward. So I think we'll see this take off pretty meaningfully. Um, If you think about Fitbits, for example, in, in the medical world, they gave individuals the ability to track their heart rate. They gave them some motivation to start jumping into cardiovascular exercise and other types of exercise, even meditation. And that's fantastic. I, I do think that like Fitbits and like the medical world, we're going to see that these direct-to-consumer products and services are going to resonate more with people who have uh, lower acuity needs, um, who are fairly healthy in their core, but could benefit from using these tools. Uh, there's a whole separate world out there that is made up of individuals, like the ones that we deal with at Genoa, who are more complicated. Not to say that they won't mm-hmm. adopt direct-to-consumer products, but their situations are different. They need, they need help addressing large barriers, like socioeconomic factors, things like transportation, even health education, they're, they're at a different point in their journey and their realities are just very different from the target customers and target audiences of these direct-to-consumer companies. And I think that, I think that's great, but the companies starting um, in this space should recognize that and not, not pitch their solutions as the silver bullet that's going to solve all of behavioral health. Um, I think we have to take more of a segmented approach. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine the polychronic uh, patient uh, who also has, you know, different behavioral health kind of issues, just going DTC and picking up their iPhone kind of thing. I think I think you're right. There are there's a population that I love how Genoa targets who really has certain needs and those needs need to be met in a specific way. Um, So I agree with your your rollout kind of vision. Um, We want to get into. Just to quickly jump in on that, what's interesting is I I do and also put one point in there. And one is that there were people who did say that telemedicine wouldn't work for this population, that sitting in front of a computer and and connecting with a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner over video wasn't going to work for the underserved patient population. And we've seen that work, right? So there is a path forward. I think we just have to learn from areas where it has worked. So I guess I'll add that caveat. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, we want to we want to transition into you, um, your role at Genoa, and and all that stuff. And to make that transition, maybe you could give us a sense of why you personally uh, wanted to go into behavioral health. Sure. Yeah. So it's not an accident that I ended up in behavioral health. Um, I have two brothers, both of them older than me, and both of them have dealt with some pretty severe chronic health conditions. One of my brothers, who's two years older, was diagnosed 
uh, with psychiatric needs when I was 11 and he was 13. And it was really a seemingly overnight episode. Um, it must have taken a little bit longer. I was probably too young to see it coming, but it came out of a treatment plan that a psychiatrist gave him in response to what that psychiatrist thought was the right um, treatment plan. And what resulted was just a series of inpatient stays and um, a diagnosis that's now with him forever of complex bipolar and um, anxiety and OCD. Super sharp individual, so passionate and very, very strong skills in certain areas, but it's now become incredibly hard, right? And that journey to figuring out what was going on with him, where do we go to get care, who can we turn to to learn more about, who else is even going through this right now, um, was really hard on the family and, of course, super hard on my brother. And it continues to be. Um, so I was thinking about this more as I started working in healthcare services at LEK. But if I started realizing that if it's this hard for us, and I have one parent who's a physician, like I mentioned, and we live in the Bay Area, and we have the resources at the tips of our fingers, then how much harder could it be for people who don't have even 10% of this? So I remember yeah. actually sitting in my interview with June for Wharton, and it just, I don't know, I hadn't really vocalized that before but I just remember telling her that this is what I want to do um, and I get the most happiness working on problems that I think have a high impact and there's endless problems to solve in healthcare. there's definitely endless problems to solve in behavioral health so it felt pretty purposeful yeah yeah wow well thank you for sharing that um, talk about lifting the stigma people sharing their personal stories and lifting the veil is one of the top ways that happens um, and especially coming from certain communities, the South Asian community among them, where that stigma exists. So uh, really credit to you for sharing that. Um, let's keep going and, and kind of getting into the Genoa story. Um, I, a lot of people know it, but m many don't. Um, and as our, as our audience grows, um, maybe they don't know these, these Wharton legends that exist, such as yourself. So could you give us a sense of what the roller coaster ride is? was like so from one doc way uh to genoa and now optum give us a sense of that and then we want to get into your role after that yeah sure so speaking about the companies overall it's, it has been an interesting journey you don't really hear about a startup being acquired before series a by a large company so it's been pretty fascinating to see um so without getting into the role right now um on the on the front of the acquisition one doc way was of course, started by Sommer and really targeted at uh, the Medicaid patient population. So when they were acquired by General Healthcare, it was a very natural fit. It was a different offering that General Healthcare could now bring to their clinic partners. Um, so now General at this point could offer the on-site pharmacies as well as psychiatrists. And they were really acting in the best interest of their clients, right? They got very close to these clinics. They learned about uh, their needs, of course, the shortage of psychiatrists and nurse practitioners, um, and basically anyone who could prescribe to the, the, the clients at these clinics was, was a dire need. So that's where the tele, telepsych acquisition was very natural. Um, and then, yeah, from there, the Optum chapter is still very new, uh, but we're excited to be part of something bigger, and I think it fits really well with our mission. It's really exciting, Miriam, to hear about your journey, you know, taking a leap on the front end, going uh, to one doc way and then seeing how that journey has evolved. And certainly your role has evolved over that time period as well. 
Can you tell us a bit more about what your role looks like today, being in charge of physician partnerships and what that looks like on the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very different from how I first started. So when I was at One Doc Way in 2015 for the summer internship, I was a product manager. And so obviously product management and physician partnerships are two polar opposite areas. Uh, and it's been exciting because it's just as daunting in a good way as uh, product management was. I remember I started off both of these roles in the same sort of fashion, right? So I hopped off the interview for the product manager role with Sommer, who had asked me to create a product requirements document as part of the interview. And I said, cool, that sounds great. Got off the call and just Googled what is a product requirements document. So I, I, when I stepped into physician partnerships, um, I had thought to myself, how am I going to start a team that does something I have no experience in doing myself, right? So how am I going to start building a team that's going to attract physicians and psychiatrists and nurse practitioners to come work with us? Um, but it yeah. was good timing for the role and for what I wanted to do because at this point, Genoa had just bought one Dockway, and now known as Genoa Healthcare, we were looking to to build these the second marketplace. We had the clinic infrastructure where our clinic partnerships team was building contracts with clinics to understand their needs and scope out roles in psychiatry, but we just didn't have a team focused on the physician or nurse practitioner side of the business. So my job was really a one-line description of figure out how to create a place where providers are going to seek us out and want to work for us. So in this process, we've started by looking at, well, what is the gap for physicians and nurse practitioners today? Um, we know that they're in short supply, and we know that they have multiple job opportunities. So how can we differentiate what we're bringing to them? I think the added bonus of them working over telepsychiatry and being able to practice from home was really helpful, but we had to clearly define uh, what was going to pull them in and resonate with them. And then on top of that, figure out how it's going to be a place that brings them happiness outside of just plugging in to see, to see individuals and, and logging off. Um, so we're continuing to evolve that. It's really more, it's become more of a BD function than a traditional recruiting function. We'll always sort of say, we're not recruiters, we're physician partnership managers, um, because to me, that embodies the ability of being able to go above and beyond just placing them in a role. We want to start changing the way they get value out of their career. Absolutely. It sounds like that initial mandate that you had was quite broad and challenging to define more crisply. I see a lot of parallels between sort of the gig economy that's been created by a lot of service-oriented firms, thinking of Uber or TaskRabbit. And the model that a lot of telemedicine firms employ, which is utilizing excess clinician capacity. I think one glaring contrast that I see in clinicians, especially with psychiatrists, I think I can say this because I'm one myself, we're pretty opinionated and really entrenched in our ways. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've seen or even faced yourself in managing the partnerships between Genoa and your base of psychiatrists? Yeah, it's a really good question, Arfan, and you're you're starting to hit the nail on the head a little bit, but uh, no one physician or nurse practitioner is the same. So they all come to us with varying degrees of um, understanding of telepsych, um, varying degrees of their tech competency, their clinical experience, different motivations, um, and different goals for what they want to get out of their of their career. So for each 
individual provider that we work with, we're looking to to not just close any gaps in understanding they have before they jump into a career with us, but to also create a longevity in the partnerships between them and us, right? So we find ourselves to be most successful if we can keep a provider happy and in their roles for a long time, because ultimately their ability to see the same patient cohort in an outpatient setting is going to lead to better outcomes and constant turnover. Mm-hmm. So it is tough sometimes to predict what, what each provider wants, um, because I, I think we just need to create a lot, a strong foundation of trust. Uh, we want them to feel comfortable coming to us if something isn't working or if they're skeptical about something. We want them to vocalize where they think the gaps are so that we can work together to solve it. So I see our relationship with them as uh, one where we're learning a lot about them as we're working with them, at, as much as they are about us and about telepsych at the same time. So it's really a two-way type of relationship that, that keeps things pretty strong and is a little bit different from the other gig economies maybe where it might be a little bit less personalized than it is for us. Yeah, it sounds like the model that uh, you've put in place at Genoa is really geared towards understanding the needs of the physicians and making sure that the environment they're practicing in is one that they're excited about, which I think goes a long way. And like you said, it's, it's quite different than some of the other, you know, more consumer oriented companies out there. Um, kind of leads me into my next question, which is when you think about the base of physicians who you recruit and then who you start to roll out over your platform, how do you adapt to changing trends in the population, whether it's thinking about how our country grapples with the addiction epidemic or our population starts to age when there's a bigger need for uh, psychiatrists who can treat substance use disorders or address geriatric psychiatry conditions? How do you uh, see that playing out? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a trend that we're seeing that's reflective of the realization that everyone could use some level of behavioral health. Um, and what we've done is we've created a, what I would consider to be a core competency around matching. So internally, we'll use the word matching a lot. Um, we're talking about fitting the right provider with the right opportunity at the right time. Everything has to align for it to work well. So it's not okay to just place a provider at a role and introduce them to a role because they have the state licensure and they have the time to give. We go a little bit deeper than that. Actually, we go much deeper than that. So we're looking specifically for people who can meet the needs of that population, whether it be specific ages, diagnoses. Um, in some states, we even have to have them be like past cultural competency tests um, if they're working with certain populations or get a suboxone license if they don't have one or find someone who speaks Spanish. Um, we've gotten so many different combinations of requirements. And our first approach is to really just find the right provider, like make sure that we're we're not compromising on, on, on everything else. We still want people who are committed to long-term partnerships with us, but that they're meeting the requirements of that, that uh, population. So if we don't end up with someone who can see the individuals at the clinic um, with those needs, then what we started to do is invest in the providers who we do have. So we have long-term partnerships with them, and we may get them licenses in other states or even get them Suboxone certified if that's something that they're interested in. And we've also expanded to nurse practitioners. We've been working with nurse practitioners who have a psychiatric degrees for many years now. And I think with the right type of provider to provider communication channels, we can 
we can branch out to other types of providers so that they can also get in front of individuals with mental health needs. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of investing in talent, we got to ask you about hiring and hiring MBAs specifically. Um, so we, we know that, you know, most companies we talk to and bring on the podcast, there's not a specific pipeline of MBAs. That's very rare to have that. Um, but but they do hire MBAs. So can you give us a sense? I know I know with the acquisition, I'm sure things are in flux. But um, just as you kind of look, look at your team around you now or look towards the future, uh, what roles might you be hiring MBAs for? What specific skill sets are you targeting? Yeah, it's it is really still at a point where we're figuring it out as we as we go and what our needs are as they evolve. But overall, there's definitely and we've hired MBAs even after I've joined the team. Um, there's definitely an opportunity for smart, sharp people who are good at working with teams and also working autonomously on challenging problems. Right. So when a company is scaling and they're tackling complicated problems in the world, then they need people who are just going to run with things on their own and, and be able to figure it out. People are going to roll up their sleeves and just dive right in. And at the same time, be able to toggle between the long-term goals and the vision and understand what that means. Talk between that and the day-to-day, right. And how to get there and be able to work backwards. It all sounds pretty much like soft skills and sort of nebulous, but I've really come to appreciate how tough it can be to, go back and forth between knowing where you're going and also figuring out how you're going to get there week by week. So there's an opportunity for MBAs to step in and lead. And that also looks like leading teams of other people to get there as well, or, or sharing past knowledge, or even I'm surprised, but I, I do use a surprising amount of, of my Wharton um, degree in my job today. And that was, partly sarcastic because it was quite valuable, but um, there's a lot of opportunity for, for MBAs to make an influence. That's great. That's good to hear. And who should they contact? Uh, definitely contact either on our website. You can apply directly or hiring at genoatelepsychiatry.com comes right to us. And we're always all over email. So you probably get a response in a blink of an eye. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm sure you're going to be getting some inbound uh, requests from uh, our audience. And Thinking about our audience of MD, MBA students, many doctors in training grapple with that decision, you know, whether they should pursue further clinical training, i.e. residency or fellowship, or go straight into consulting or industry. So for our audience who are thinking about making that decision, what do you see as a value proposition of further clinical training versus going ahead and jumping directly into a company like Genoa or Optum? Yeah, that's... That's a good question uh, and very top of mind is we even talk to residents who are thinking about doing telepsych or when I talk to my peers who are physicians themselves. Um, so I, I think that there is definitely value in learning about the broader context of healthcare. So even if a physician wants to go and practice clinically, they could benefit from some time of understanding how the healthcare system operates, what the ins and outs are, what role they play. Um, med school education and residency, and this is something I talk about with my husband a lot. He went to UCSF. He does residency in the Bronx in emergency medicine. So he even tells me that he feels like his med school education gave him a really solid understanding of, of, uh, of course, medical needs of of individuals, but it doesn't, and gives him the confidence to handle complex cases, but he felt like he's lacking the larger context. So 
whether or not that means working somewhere else or just finding a way to, to absorb that kind of knowledge, I think in a world where things are converging and private practice is starting to decline, it's just helpful for physicians to build that knowledge base and, and even diversify what they're, what they're learning and the skills they're developing along the way so that they can start to lead as, as some of the most progressive doctors today. Um, it's not necessary. I still think that people should do what they're most passionate about and follow their gut. But if someone has that interest, I've seen a lot of my physician friends um, enjoy taking a step outside of the medical world and, and seeing what's around them. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of those passions, um, we like to open up a little space at the end of the podcast for our guests to share some thoughts. Um, you know, MBAs are always looking for advice. Um, and those who come on the podcast are most apt to provide that. So uh, do you have any last thoughts or kind of advice for, for MBAs specifically? Yeah, I would say that if you're looking to jump into healthcare, and especially if it's parts of healthcare that are stigmatized, you shouldn't be afraid to lead with your personal stories. Um, I had to learn this the long way, and I learned it at Wharton. It wasn't something I was really open about before, but I remember giving, standing up to give a student lecture on mental health, and I ran through the slides with a friend of mine who was organizing the event, and she let me go through the whole practice run, and she said, this is great, but why aren't you opening up with your brother and why you even care about this space? And that made me think, I don't know. I guess I just thought that was unacceptable. But the more I learned from things like P3 and certain leadership classes at, at Wharton and um, from my peers and from that experience, if you can lead with authenticity and show some vulnerability and tell people why you're working in this field, then you'll be able to inspire more people to join you. Um, I think you have to find the right balance, especially if you're a people manager. But in a world where breaking stigma is half the battle, how you lead can make a really big impact. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And frankly, very few of us have the courage it takes to blend our personal and professional lives. Um, we tend to hide that when in fact, it's usually the main motivator. Um, and so you have clearly put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you're out here talking about this, sharing the story, you've shared it at Warden um, and look where it's gotten you. You're at one of the most successful uh, areas, you know, companies in your field now. Um, and so we really appreciate that authenticity and the courage to be able to share that. Miriam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm sure you'll be getting uh, plenty of inbounds uh, for, for yourself and for the company. Thank you both so much. I really enjoyed the time and it's always nice to take a step out of the day-to-day -to, -day to, to talk about this. So thank you. Thank you.